Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast about icons in sport. The simplest way to start would be really to define what is a sports icon. And to me it's a figure whose genius and success fundamentally alters the sport to the point where the individual bestrides the sport in the popular conscious. That that can be fairly open-ended, in the sense that, by popular conscious, I think to be a true sports icon, you have to go outside of the sports fraternity. So in other words, it's not just the fans of the sport in question. It has to be some sense that when the average person on the street is asked about that sport, you come up with that name, one of the first few people. In other words, even the even the non-sports fan knows your achievements and knows how important you are to that sport. And I suppose that really leads on to the sort of next question, the next sort of key question, is really, is there a difference, or what is the difference between an icon in a team sport compared to an individual sport? For me... The icon in a team sport is tethered to a fixed narrative. So if you take Mike Trout as your example, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim center fielder in baseball, he is already a Hall of Famer. Even if he never plays another inning, he is still an upper-level Hall of Famer, even though he's not turned 30. Fantastic. He can do virtually anything. He can steal bases, he can hit for power, he can hit for average, he's got a good defence, he's got a good throwing arm. Everything that you could want, he can do. And yet, he's reached the postseason once in his career. So that the overall limitations of the Los Angeles Angels means that he can't dominate the sport. In other words, you know, his postseason career was a three-game sweep by the Kansas City Royals. So he's played three postseason games in his career. So you can't dominate the sport. Yes, you can pick up all the MVPs every year. You can be the consensus best player in baseball, but you haven't won a postseason game. You've only made three appearances, three games in you know, sort of six, seven, eight years in the league. I mean, even if you take Lionel Messi, despite having this singular, fantastic genius playing for you if you're a Barcelona fan, in the same intervening time period, Real Madrid have won four Champions League titles. So even with that you know, generational player, you still your biggest rivals have still won the league, they've still won the Champions League multiple times. And, you know, Messi is always going to be tethered to Barcelona. You even if he moves on to someone else now, he's already in the slow, gentle decline phase of his career. Yes, he might win a Champions League, let's say if he goes to Man City, for instance. But your image of him is always going to be that of him in a Barcelona shirt at his best, under Pep, under Luis Enrique, scoring wonder goals, being fantastic, the dribbles, the, the assists, the goals, the whole element of sort of tiki taka. He's going to be less remembered for being in an Argentina shirt. There's going to be a couple of memories, but that's always going to be the, I suppose, second paragraph in his 
career's obituary. In other words, it's going to say, fantastic, won everything that you could possibly win for Barcelona, you know, broke all of these records, less successful international level, but still got to a World Cup final, still got to a Copa America final, but it's not going to be quite as great, not quite as special in your mind. You're just not going to imagine him in an Argentina shirt. When you imagine him in an Argentina shirt, it's going to be having lost finals, having been knocked out of World Cups, and the knowledge that he might never have won the big one, which will always mean that at international level, he'll could be compared less favourably to you know, Maradona, for instance. And even in his career, he's always going to be tethered to Ronaldo. That will be the debate of that sporting generation were you a Cristiano fan were you a Lionel Messi fan it he's never going to be fully taken as a an individual whereby if you take the individual sport you can dominate it you can dominate it for 5 10 15 years you can alter the scope and foundation of that sport it's magnified so if you take darts and you take snooker and you look at them in the sort of 70s and 80s when they were first really being put onto television and it was being you know the sport was being displayed to a wider audience than your your hardcore devotees is that originally you know the 180 you know getting three triple 20s in a row was rare now it is commonplace. The sport has improved so much. And with that, you've then had you know, people that have dominated the sport. Phil the Power Taylor would be your kind of classic example. Someone who pushed the sport on. And so that the next generation would then always be living in his shadow. And having to then try and get even better than Phil Taylor. You know, upping the rate of scoring. You know, fewer darts. More, you know, 180s. You know, in snooker, you... you know, the one four seven break was just rare. In the 70s and 80s, it was just... It was something that was theoretically possible. It wasn't something that was done on a regular basis. It was huge news when someone first did it. And then, you know, it would only happen once in a while. And now you've got to the place where it's wouldn't say it's commonplace, but it's far more regular. It's not a shocking, it's not front page news. When Ronnie O'Sullivan did his 147 in the 90s, and it was, you know, in, in just minutes, I was actually watching that on TV as it happened. It was just incredible. Not just that he did it, but how quickly. You know, in other words, he wasn't, you know, he was in the moment. And so you can, you know, that kind of genius can, you know, in Stephen Hendry in the 90s. Steve Davis in the 80s, they can dominate a sport. And people say, oh, yeah, Snooker, Ronnie O'Sullivan, or, you know, previous generation Snooker, that's Steve Davis. Whereby you can't really separate Pele from the Brazilian national team. In other words, oh, it's Pele, the great Brazilian striker that won all those World Cups with Brazil. Which then... We know it when we see it, you know, the, the old Potter Stewart, you know, uh, Supreme Court Justice discussing pornography. You know it when you see it. So you know an icon when you see it. But I suppose the deeper point is, is really how is iconhood attained? And I suppose historically, 
you'd be in a decline phase of the icon's career. When suddenly you, the end is close and people start, you know, effectively putting your, you into the, the sports canon. In other words, where are they? Are they at the top? Is, you know, the greatest of their generation or the greatest of all time? And so usually it was in the decline phase of that, of that, per, that individual, that sportsman man and sportswoman's career. But it's not always, but in some ways, a lot of the time it was interlinked with an unexpected late career success. So you've got um, Jack Nicholas's 86 Masters, when he won at 46. And what that allows is, and you can even say with Tiger Woods unexpectedly winning the Masters recently, is it gives the, the public and the sporting press the ability to celebrate and reassess their legacy. It allows you to remember when, not just when they were great, but also what it means. In other words, when, so, when you're watching a great sports person in their pomp, it, it's sometimes difficult to really step out of that moment and to see the, the wider achievement. It's only when their career is ending. Much in the same way I felt when Derek Jeter... Derek Jeter's career was ending was that he had been the Yankees shortstop since I was in primary school early primary school he had been the Yankees shortstop during secondary school during university during the first time I got a job when I did my masters then when I went out and got into you know my actual working career he'd just been the Yankees shortstop for that entire period of my life and it's only when you sit back and go, he was you know, getting effectively 200 hits in the 90s under Bill Clinton, under George W. Bush, under Obama. And you realise the extent of how important they were, which you might have lost when the Yankees were winning everything in the late 90s and early 2000s. You know, with Tiger Woods, it was very much people realising how much he'd lost with you know his reputation with the scandals and the injuries that had really we'd lost the ability to remember when tiger was at his peak and how amazing it was and that now this slightly diminished slightly different tiger woods was still able over those four days to summon up you know the gifts that he'd always had and was able to, you know, fight off people who were, you know, really young enough to be his son. People who didn't have the baggage he had, the difficulties, all of the problems, the physical pain. And to then win. We all knew he was an icon already. Even if, you know, diminished in some way, shape or form. But that's what really cemented it. When people were able to effectively forgive him. And were able to, to actually celebrate his genius again in a way that they hadn't been for that sort of period of four, five, six, seven years. And what I've sort of brought up in that point is, in some ways, okay, we know what an icon is, so what's a legend? Where Where is that line drawn? At what point do you have to get to iconhood? And I think I've said it's winning. At some point, you have to have success. It has to be in majors. It has to be in titles. It can't just be in putting up numbers. Take, for instance, the top level of 
quarterbacks in the NFL, historically speaking. Now, effectively, Drew Brees has more yards and more touchdowns than Tom Brady. Brees has one title with the New Orleans Saints, and that was a huge thing in the aftermath of Katrina. But Brady has six Super Bowl championships. And really, what that means is if you had to give one of them the status of a legend and one the status of the icon, it's always going to be Tom Brady. Because in the end, he was doing it year after year after year, getting to you know, Super Bowls, AFC Championship, just year after year, almost you know, eight, nine, ten years. The Patriots were just there. You could almost ink them in on your wall chart at the start of the season. Whereby you, know, you had lots of years where Breeze was you know, seven and nine, putting up just ridiculous you know, offensive numbers, but the defense was terrible. And in some ways, yes, those numbers were great, but they weren't actually leading to anything more. It was just, yeah, he might have got 375 yards, four touchdowns, but if they've given up 46 points and lost the game, it's not quite as special in that regards. You know, legends don't ascend to iconhood. It rarely happens. You know, a legend's success is fleeting. You know, it can be a celebration of talent, even unfulfilled. Like in the same way I was discussing with Breeze. He was always able to put up fantastic numbers. He is a brilliant, brilliant quarterback. But his postseason record isn't as spectacular as Tom Brady's, whereby with Tom Brady you have so many examples of where he was able to will a side to victory, to always somehow be there at the absolute clutch moment, which is, makes him an icon, because you can't take... You know, Tom Brady is the New England Patriots, and what the Patriots mean was you know, dominating an era in a sport that is designed in terms of a salary cap, in terms of the draft, designed for teams not to dominate. And yet, Belichick and Brady were, in a way that Drew Brees was able to put up fantastic numbers in an era which was designed for quarterbacks to do put up wonderful numbers, but it's not quite as meaningful in that regards. You know, you can have legends that are unfulfilled. You can have George Best is a legend. He's not quite an icon. In the sense that by the time he gets to sort of twenty nine, his career peters out. It you know he ends up playing for you know Fulham you know in the second division, bits and pieces, doing great moments. Rarely, you know he then goes out to America. You know when Northern Ireland qualified for the World Cup, George Best could have still been playing, but by that point, you know he drank his way out of football, and he wasn't a part of that. You know, you can have legends who are anti-hero. You can have, you know, you can have cheats. You know, you can have Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens. But the icon is usually held to a higher standard. You know, Greg Norman is a great example of a legend. He's a fantastic golfer. You know, did some wonderful things during his peak. You know, won a couple of US PGAs, but was never able to win the gold-plated majors, was, you know, failed in the Masters, failed in the Open, and, you know, had these epic kind of collapses. Now, if you, if you then, it's a bit like, the best example I can think of would be, you know, Jack Nicholas is an icon. 
an icon of golf for such an extended period of time. You know, he was the person who was always winning in the, sort of the popular conscious of just of Americans and of people who knew about golf. But Tom Watson is a legend. You know, he's still brilliant golfer. You know, one majors. And you've got, you know, the jewel in the sun at Turnbury in 1977. You know, it affirms Watson's status as a legend. He's brilliant, he wins, but it's only a chapter in, you know, Nicholas's iconic career. You know, in the end, they had a rivalry. And on, you know, in that tournament, at the end of that tournament, that was, you know, you could write books about that last round. That You know, just two men... 18 holes of golf, you can write 350, 400 pages just focusing on that. But Jack Nicholas isn't tethered to his rivalry with Tom Watson. You know, Nicholas's genius supplants it. Yes, on his day, Tom Watson could compete with Jack Nicholas, but over te- you know, a period of 10, 15 years, Nicholas was just better. And so, really. I'm going to come up with a list of icons in individual sports, you know, historically. And it's not an exhaustive list. I, you could sit there all day and have arguments over who's an icon, which sport. You know, you could try and mention more sports, whether this is more, you know, slightly more focused on Western sports than, you know, Eastern sports. And I think to keep things simple, you know, I'm going to focus on boxing, you know, motorsports, tennis, golf. I think they're the sports that are most popular, I think, globally and where you can have icons. I don't think Phil the Power Taylor is a global sports icon. He is an icon in darts, and darts is increasing in popularity over the world, but it's not global. Neither is, I think, snooker at this point. It has pockets in different areas, but Ronnie O'Sullivan and Phil the Powder are not famous everywhere they go on planet Earth in a way that Serena Williams is, in a way that Michael Schumacher is. So on this list, I'd say Jack Johnson, Muhammad Ali, Mike Tyson, Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, Michael Schumacher, Bjorn Borg, Steffi Graf, Martina Navratilova, Chris Everett. Now, out of the list, I think the most... Interesting one, I think, to discuss first would be Jack Johnson. His iconhood is very much a contemporaneous evocation of race relations in the early 20th century. You know, you have the concept and then the monetization of the great white hope. So in other words, Jack Johnson was a brilliant boxer, but how he was perceived by his contemporaries and by the sporting world, the sporting press, was very much as someone who needed to be beaten. In other words, there was a strong desire amongst the sporting public, the white sporting public, for him to be beaten, and how good it would be if there was a great white hope who would then rise up and effectively put Jack Johnson in his place. As a, I suppose, and let's face it, it's racism. It's putting, you know, the black man into his place. The thing is, is that actually, when you sort of read into it, 
is that a lot of the fighters that were put up as the Great White Hope really didn't have much of a hope. They were hopelessly overmatched. It's the monetization of it. In other words, you would go to Australia and they would have a local boy who would then be, you know, pushed up. You would then make a huge amount of money. You'd sell out. And then this no hoper would be put into the ring with Jack Johnson and then be absolutely annihilated. And so as a result, and in a way there's almost an element of, you know, that's comparable with O.J. Simpson. You know, there, there was... And for Jack Johnson, there was a diminution of his iconhood because you were dealing with such a vastly different time. You know, out of the list of people I've just you know mentioned of in terms of sports icons for an individual sport, he his was the absolute earliest example. Everybody else is pretty much post Second World War, where you've got TV, radio, newspapers out far more media coverage of sport. His was a completely different generation and a different attitude, a different world even, to an extent. And so when you look at his iconhood, it's always slightly caveated because you have the, the controversies, you have the, the legal problems, the sense that he was very much an individual athlete. He was someone who wanted to make a huge amount of money, wanted to be the best at his sport, and that was it. He wasn't necessarily that interested in, you know, being a an overt civil rights figure. He wasn't going to be sitting there at demonstrations. He wasn't going to try and use the platform he had to try and make a difference. He did make a difference, absolutely. You can consider him a hero because he was you know, coming up against huge amounts of racism, you know, the oppressive nature of that systemic racism. But it's a little bit like when you, you can compare him to O.J. Simpson. In other words, O.J. Simpson became a huge sports star in America from his days at USC, from his days playing as a running back for the Buffalo Bills. But... For him, he he wanted to transcend race. He didn't want to be someone who, you know, in the same way that you could say for Jim Brown, Muhammad Ali, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, all these people who really wanted to make a difference in the civil rights. OJ just wanted to, you know, effectively do his business. He wanted to be great at football. He wanted to be a hero. He wanted to make money from, you know, his name. And that was it. And that's similar to really what Jack Johnson did. He just wanted to be an athlete who happened to be black. And so as a result, it makes him such a harder case to put into the African-American sports canon. If you're going to compare him to, let's say, Jackie Robinson or Jesse Owens, it's so much easier to write about Jesse Owens and Jackie Robinson. You know, they are far more contemporary icons. And it's easier to put a narrative to them whereby, you know, OJ, you obviously have the, you know, the, the, case, the murder case. You then have the difficulty with you know, Jack Johnson of trying to evoke an era that is so much more different to ours and with different morals. Uh, completely, you know, in the sense that Jack Johnson was one of the first, you know, major African-American sports stars that, you know, rose up 
to get to the stage of being sort of a national and international icon. You know, the years that he spent living in France, and it, it becomes that much more difficult. You know, I mean, one of the interesting things on this list is dealing with motorsports. So I put Michael Schumacher on there, and yet. You could certainly make an argument that Richard Petty and Dale Earnhardt could have been on the, this list. And I suppose with Dale Earnhardt in his NASCAR career, was he ever a national... He was definitely not an international icon. Was he fully a national icon? I, I would imagine if you were to look at you know, name brand recognition, Dale Earnhardt was a god in... I suppose maybe 20 states of the Union, and I think he was not quite unknown, but was far less, would probably be maybe in the top 20 of most popular or most well-known athletes in the rest, in the other sort of 30 plus states of the Union. And the same thing I think with Richard Petty, because, you know, NASCAR after Dale Earnhardt, after the tragic you know, death at Daytona, has expanded, it has it does far more you know, races outside of the traditional southern heartland. I don't think it's fully national at this stage. And I think one of the more important things is, yes, you have to have the singularity of dominance and winning that separates you, separates the icon from just the mere legend. But I think the deeper point is that it's not just that you won, it's when you win and how you win. So basically what you often find is, is that the icon, by their success, by their singularity, what it allows is it breeds and creates an explosion of media coverage. So that's why you don't put Fangio on this list. Because yes, he won lots of championships for you know, Ferrari in the early 50s, but that was really before the explosion of television coverage of Formula One, where it became truly international in a way that Michael Schumacher's did. It, he dominated the sport. And so that people just knew that if you were talking motor racing in F1, it was Michael Schumacher and whoever was trying to compete with Michael Schumacher at that moment, whether that be you know, Damon Hill, Mika Hakkinen, Jack Villeneuve, none of these people were able to compete with him for much more than sort of two or three years at, at most before they fell by the wayside. It was always Michael Schumacher that was dominating. So, you know, with someone like Arnold Palmer, he popularised golf to the wider American public, the people who hadn't previously been interested in professional golf. You know, you have the creation of Arnie's Army, and he was someone who television and radio and the press immediately would sort of swarm to. In other words, if you wanted to get golf and you on television and you wanted a big audience, you made sure that you were following Arnold Palmer before, even if he wasn't necessarily winning you put him on there because people would want to follow Arnold Palmer rather than the guy who, let's say, you know, was winning the tournament. Let's say over that four days, that guy was amazing. But no one was interested. Even if that guy was having a career weekend, it was far more interesting to see how Ar whether Arnold Palmer could chase down the guy having a career weekend. Now, I think a perfect example would be 
the Muhammad Ali's Rumble in the Jungle. It was basically one of the first sporting events that was not not quite, not in terms of being televised at the actual moment that the fight took place. It was in that it was watched so many times after the fact. It's one of the first um, sporting events that was on was used in flights when they started have watching being able to watch television and films in flights and the airlines managed to get the rights to rumble in the jungle. So in other words, you had X amount of people who might have followed the who were hardcore boxing fans who would have followed it on the radio, on television at the time. But that was still relatively, depending on what time the, the fight was, in US time, British time. What it was is the millions of people who had heard of the fight, who knew it was a legendary fight, Rumble in the Jungle, just as a name, rings out to people. Even people who don't follow boxing, who aren't sports fans, they will know that there was Muhammad Ali and he had Rumble in the Jungle. They might know who he was fighting, they won't know the context of it, they will know there's Rumble in the Jungle, Thriller in Manila. And it was all those people who heard about the fight, who vaguely knew the story, and then when they were on the flight in the 70s, I can watch that, and then watching it. And so suddenly it became probably one of the very first kind of viral sports moments where virtually everyone had seen it at some point, whether on, you know, later in you know, the 80s and 90s on ESPN Classic and YouTube on the internet. But at the time it was people on planes with, a, with only a handful of things to watch. Rumble in the Jungle was something that millions of people watched. And it was just, it was not just sports fans, it was the general public. You know, it, that's when boxing really stepped out. It had always been popular in the 50s and 60s and the early 70s as one of the big American sports. But that was probably um, with Muhammad Ali's fame because of, you know, Vietnam and being banned from boxing and his triumphal comebacks and being able to actually watch it. Even if it was after the fact, that was when boxing really, in many ways, reached its zenith in terms of its general popularity. So in many ways we've discussed the, the origins of really, in many ways, the origins of where icons come from in sports. But what about the modern sports icon, with all the differences that we've had, changes sort of technologically over the last sort of generation? You know, really what has changed. And I suppose the explosion of coverage and how in-depth it now is, you know, even to the point of almost saturation, is that Iconhood is now bestowed mid-career. You have people being called the greatest of all time while they're still competing. You know, Simone Biles with regards to gymnastics. You know, Tom Brady with, you know, NFL. And in some ways, it's becoming more a recent phenomenon in individual sports because it's it's really related to their growth as popular sports with media coverage. And so you, and I'm going to get into this in a little bit more detail, but with golf, tennis, and motorsports, and with motorsports, it was the concept of becoming international for Formula One. And really nationwide for NASCAR is that icons were harbingers, harbingers of the rise of sports and coverage. 
And a lot of that is to do really with sort of post-war popularity. With the rise of individual sports, in some ways it, it was the need for you know television and radio to find heroes. And how these mediums would build and define those sports. I suppose it's kind of a, almost a sort of chicken and the egg debate. You know, was it, you know, was it a simply a case that television in how it would bring to life these sports? So in other words, you had you know professional golf, you had the majors, you had lots of different tournaments and all had their backstories you know you had the open you had the masters all of that was there before the television era so you had people writing about golf you had legends in of golf but in television in how it brought it to life in other words you you can read a million times about how beautiful Augusta is. And I think it's only when you see it on television that the full extent of it, I think, becomes apparent. And so it's almost, you know, in terms of chicken and the egg, was it simply that there was always going to be you know, legends of golf and that simply the television brought it to a wider audience? Or is it more a situation that television in its need, in other words... It wasn't just that to get golf on television on a Sunday in the final round, you needed something more. You couldn't just say, this is just the Houston Open, or this is the Boston Open. Someone has to win it by, you know, by... Someone has to win it by sundown. What they needed was they needed stars, so that they could... So that you're the person sitting at home watching their television with multiple channels that they could watch would choose to watch the golf. So in other words, with Arnold Palmer, with Jack Nicholas, they had a, a narrative arc bestowed upon them. And in some ways, all, all Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas did at the start of their careers was become pro golfers and you know, take their go as far as their talent could take them. And so in the way how and this is television more than anything else ended up producing a narrative art they had to create a story that would enrapture people and that's where you've got Arnie's army in other words Arnold Palmer wasn't necessarily the most beautiful golfer in terms of the fluidity of his swing but as a character he captured people's hearts and he captured people's imaginations so in the end the narrative arc that neither Palmer or Nicholas particularly did anything to create. They were simply themselves and they were then given a lucrative backstory that and their success would then make ever greater. In other words, Arnie had the good fortune of being great at the beginning, at the dawn of golf on television. And then Nicholas had the advantage of coming after, to being the next generational talent after Arnold Palmer in the age of colour. And both of them fitted the narrative that the media and public want, wish to see. Arnold Palmer had an everyman quality that got the person who wasn't necessarily hugely into golf, who wouldn't have had their clubs, 
wanted him to win. You know, with Nicholas, you you have the you have the concession putt in the nineteen sixty nine Ryder Cup, and so he, in many ways, embodied what people you know what people thought best of golf. Here was this, you know. He was this golfing genius, but at the same time with the you know, compassion and the sense of you know, fair play that is so intrinsic to golf. Someone who was very, who just looked good on television. So in other words, neither Palmer nor Nicholas was really ever in control of their narratives in while they were being created. They were very much a product of, you know, the media and of television and, you know, the more television made golf popular, the more people wrote about golf. The more pages were given to it in the sports section. And eventually, really, what Palmer and Nicholas did was carry on. In other words, the more they were successful, the more the, the more money came in, the more adulation. And that success was almost a sort of rising tide that lifted all of the boats of golf. It brought, you know, more golf courses were built. And more people took up the sport. You know, prize draw, you know, the, the, the fields for, yeah, there was more competitions. You know, the prize money went up. So, in comparison now, the modern icon is really in full control of their narratives. And in some ways are aware of their impending iconhood in a way that Palmer and Nicholas might have had an inkling but probably weren't fully aware until they had actually retired. So in other words, the narrative is now created at the beginning, not at the middle or the end. In other words, Arnold Palmer was successful, Jack Nicholas was successful, and then sprung from that was the narrative that eventually meant that they were really, by the end of their careers, they were sports icons. Now you can have someone, you know, be... Yeah, LeBron is your classic example. You know, going from high school straight to the NBA. So in other words, you know, even with Kobe Bryant, you know, in the sense that his games, you know, his high school games were national news. When he went to the prom, his high school prom, he took the R&B singer Monica, which is just, you know, insane. Imagine, it is just an incredible difference in that, Obviously, when Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus first started playing golf professionally, that wasn't there. <laughs> no, it, I think probably one of the better examples of this would be sort of Lance Armstrong. Yeah, the key tenant of his appeal was this narrative of the brash American, the brash Texan, scaling a traditionally European marquee event. And he has this inspiring backstory of having overcome testicular cancer and then going on to not just winning it. You know, in other words, if he'd won the Tour de France once, that would have made a pretty good television movie. You know, it might have even a low you know, it might have even been made into a an actual Hollywood film. But where it became different was is that he didn't just win it once. He then went on for an, an unprecedented spell of dominance. And it was monetized by Armstrong, by Nike, by various sponsors. It allowed him to create the, you know, Live Strong charity out of that. You know. And with Armstrong, it, it, it's so, 
it's complicated. In other words, the Livestrong charity and the money that he raised for it has done a lot of good. And having, you know, before his downfall, having him as a poster child, you know, I'm sure it did lots of good for lots of people who've, you know, suffered the enormity and the awfulness of cancer and having someone who's beaten it and then gone on to you know have success i'm sure that's helped a lot of people but the problem with lance armstrong is is that his monomaniacal desire for victory at all costs and his egotistical cruel domination of the sport in the sense that he would destroy anyone who was you know, that would prove any kind of threat to the legacy, to the iconhood that he wanted to have. You know, the sense that everything that he did, and so much of it was for himself. I've always wondered whether that's on some level that... Because, I mean, his everything that he did was built on industrial levels of cheating. In other words, the problem that you have with the Tour de France and cycling in general is that there's a constant desire for improvement. In other words, more speed, more difficult stages, more stages, more tightly compressed. And with that arc of constantly wanting improvement, constantly wanting something that's more challenging, means that really the only way the sport could seem to improve was that the they had to get 20% faster. Because that's what, effectively, that I imagine there's somewhere in you know, the people that produce cycling on television, there was a curve that said, the quicker you go, the more people are watching. And the tighter the schedule, the more people that will follow it from stage one to Paris when you go through the Arc de Triomphe and the winner is in the you know, yellow jacket. Sorry, yellow jersey. And so as a result, really the only way that they were going to be able to keep up with that was cheating, was using performance enhancing drugs to maintain that level of speed that captured people, not just you know your cycling aficionados, but your casual viewer, which is what you know made there be more sponsors in the sport, more money, more prize money. But the thing is is that there's taking some drugs because most other people are, and that was you know the need to win. But with Armstrong's, it wasn't just to. You know, compete with everybody else. It was to destroy the competition. It was to completely dominate. It was, you know, he wasn't just going to win a couple and then retire. It had to be every single record. Lance Armstrong had to be bigger than the sport. It was Lance Armstrong and the Tour de France, which is the where he would win and where the popularity of the sport would come from. And so as a result... You know, it was that was still the battle, even when it became pretty clear to virtually everyone in the sports world that he had cheated. <laughs> that you know, you couldn't in that era win six, seven Tour de France's in a row with every with all of the cheating that was going on elsewhere without having done so yourself. 
and the, you, the battle that he had to try and you know maintain it. it at no point it was the only time he was ever going to admit it was when there was no way out and even then when he you know tried to come when he came clean on oprah and even if you look at it, his his current life now where he has this podcast and there's a there's always a sense when when you're dealing with Lance Armstrong that there's a lack of remorse, that really okay he was found out he had his title stripped away, but if he could do it again he would have just got better at covering up the evidence. I mean even with this podcast it's I I I, I always imagine it as rechanneling. Okay I was once the greatest cyclist of all time now that's been taken away from me, but I, instead I will now become the best cycling podcaster i will have the most hits the most views i will have i will be the voice of cycling and in some ways this self-awareness has created so many problems the thing is is that icons are always viewed differently legends can be fall down drunks they can be you know they can be anti-heroes the icon is always held to a, a much higher level. And a lot of the time, what you have, when, you, when you're made an icon after the fact, Babe Ruth was a classic example. Yes, he was an, a legend of the sport, but at his early death, he then became an icon. And as a result, a lot of the controversies that were in his career were kind of smoothed out. In other words, the drinking, the womanising, the you know, eating of hot dogs, you know, not always being in the best shape, you know, the times where, you know, he feuded with the you know, owners, times when he feuded with the manager, feuded with the crowd. That was all kind of dealt with by writers, by the press, by the people that you know, wrote books on Babe Ruth. In other words, Babe Ruth didn't ever have to in his post-playing career, really ever have to explain himself. He didn't have to, you know, you know, say, well, I'm sorry I did this, I'm sorry I did that. Whereby now, what you have is that when you're aware of iconhood, when you're aware that everyone is judging, when you're aware that there is 24-7 coverage of you, that you or yourself not are a product, you're a brand. And any your behaviour will then impact your brand and how much money you make. And if you have are the top level of your sport, you will damage the sport itself. That produces it, it's, it's so difficult. I mean, if you look at you know one of my favourite articles that really deals with sort of how Iconhood can be so damaging, especially the self awareness is sort of Wright Thompson, the secret history of Tiger Woods, when he writes about how. Tiger Woods had this intrinsic guilt that he'd never, uh, whether it's guilt is the right word, but this desire to have served in the military. You know, his dad did, his dad was you know, a war hero. And you know, when he grew up you know, playing golf, it was with his dad and his war buddies. And so in his sort of late 30s, early 40s, he spent a lot of time you know, with military. <laughs> And a few times he would sort of go on um, parachute runs. And it was interesting. There's, uh, it was almost as if there was two sort of schools of thought. 
there were some people that were like, oh, wow, Tiger is supporting the troops. You know, these are the troops themselves that he was kind of with on these exercises. And it's like, oh, that's cool. You know, he really respects and digs what he we do. He wants to kind of experience that. And that's fantastic. He, you know, he's giving us, you know, you know charitable support. He's helping you know, really build the you know, a positive image for the army. That's fantastic, you know, that this world-class golfer, this, you know, legendary golfer, you know, just wants to hang out with us. But then there's the sort of other side of it where people are like, well, look, you know, he's just playing soldier. He's not done the training. You know, he's, this is someone who's just, you know, basically spent his whole life on a golf course making millions of pounds, being the greatest golfer of all time. And now he's kind of going through a bit of a midlife crisis playing soldier boy because he, you know, he had you know, somewhat difficult relationship with his father and so a couple of times he got knee injuries from you know doing these kind of military you know jumping out of planes you know going on these kind of runs and and that part of the damage that his body was all was really self-inflicted you know it's no more different than if he'd lost you know several years of his career because he'd become a, a full down drunk the point is, is that if you're a professional golfer and you rely on your body, you shouldn't be jumping out of planes, you know, effectively playing soldier. <laughs> I think, you know, with, and I think probably the best examples of how was the visionary n nature of Richard Williams and Earl Woods in how they built the Williams sisters, how they built Tiger. And whether it's an interesting point whether so they monetized they commodified you know their offspring they not only made them great athletes they made them icons and built in all of the infrastructure that you would need in other words serena williams was born and grew up in michigan and the father moved the their security business that he ran to compton in you know south central la and what that did was, is that he didn't have to move his family there. But the thing is, by if Serena Williams had just grown up with Venus in Michigan, that would have still been a fantastic backstory. They still would have you know, broken the barriers of elite sport in tennis. But what captured people's imaginations was the idea that they were on this public court and that there was gangs, there was bullets flying everywhere... Which, and that did happen, but it's more of a myth than it is an absolute, you know, full-on exactly what happened. They only lived there for a short period of time before they then, you know, the girls moved on to high-level training. But it worked so well, and it works even now. You know, Tiger Woods was, you know, one of the most hyped golfers. I mean, he had a huge Nike deal before he'd even turn pro. You know, the point is, is that they created, and I would argue broadly that both Serena, Venus to a lesser extent, and Tiger won. They brought new audiences to tennis, to golf. You know, it didn't hinder their on-field on course, on court success. You know, Tiger Woods is one of the greatest golfers of all time. Serena Williams is one of the greatest tennis players of all time. But 
there is a dark side to it, and you know Tiger Woods' body gets destroyed. You know the scandal about you know the industrial sense of cheating that he did on his wife and on his kids. The point is, is that individual sports always have an element of commercialism, and in Woods and in the Williams sisters, it was savvy. It was savviness on the part of Earl Woods and on Richard Williams to work out that their offspring could make millions and not just be great, but fundamentally alter the sport. That so they could not just be legends, that they could be icons. You know, the point is, is that motorsports, you're trying to sell cars. You know, the rise of tennis is a byproduct of suburban sports. One of the most fascinating in, insights in that basically under a lot of zoning laws in a lot of states in America, they needed to have you know, space for you know, athletics, you know, some form of sports. So obviously if you put a baseball field on, that takes up you know, a good acre or two. A football field, the same thing, golf course. But actually what they discovered, even a swimming pool, that takes a lot of upkeep. But under these kind of zoning laws, tennis courts... Tennis courts are you know, quite a small space, doesn't, you know, especially if you're dealing with a hard court doesn't require a huge amount of upkeep. And so that's why, uh, you know, in the six, late 60s, early 70s, tennis started to you know, expand because people were playing because they grew up in, you know, these neighbourhoods where if you wanted to play sports, tennis was, you know, just literally on your doorstep. You know, you had the, you know, revolution in leisure time. So people had time to, you know, sports as lifestyle. So you could then, you know, there was the aspirational element of being able to afford golf clubs, being able to afford membership at your local golf club or your local country club. So to end this podcast, I'm going to really focus on sort of Serena Williams as a sort of key study for what happens when I call it the tyranny of narrative, and that you often get once you are an icon once you take on that responsibility especially if you're doing it mid-career it's so difficult everything suddenly then becomes a part of you know does this continue my icon is this what an icon should do so really serena williams's career it's almost sort of three acts you have the immediate where she comes in obviously venus had already you know started to dominate the sport and she was, you know, Richard always said, you know, Venus is great, but Serena is the one that's got the grit, the heart, and I think the fire to be truly great. And then she starts winning six majors. She has the death of her sister in a gangland shooting. And the second act is really when she, you know, when you've spent your whole life just playing tennis to the, the exclusion of almost everything else, and at that point, she had made huge amounts of money. She had been broken down barriers. But there was a moment when it looked like she could finish her career in her mid-twenties, mid to late twenties. Go off, become, do something with fashion, just enjoy her money and just start living. And she had the loss to Sharapova. And suddenly it was this decision was that I'm going to embrace the challenge of being the greatest tennis player ever. And so this kind of third act has now been where she just becomes destructive, where she you know, focuses on her fitness, really just knuckles down and just starts destroying people. 
you know, becomes a supernova. So yes, she loses to Sharapova, and then for the pretty much the rest of Sharapova's career, Serena Williams was on a mission to absolutely annihilate her every single time they played. And at this point, she was brilliant. You know, she won the Serena Slam. She was just the dominant figure in women's tennis. And so you have this moment at the Australian Open where, just before the start of the tournament, she discovers that she's unexpectedly pregnant. And one of her first thoughts is, how am I going to win this tournament? So effectively, she gets the medical okay, and then carries on the tournament, and then goes on and wins it. And at this point, she becomes an icon. Because she realises that eventually she's going to, after winning this tournament, she's going to have to come out and say, not only have I won this major you know, in her early 30s, usually with the tennis you know, kind of ageing spectrum, you know, you're supposed to be great in your early, you know, in your late teens, early 20s, and really be on the decline by your mid to late 20s. And by the time you're 30, you're just there to make up the numbers. And she'd completely obliterated that curve. And so really, she would then become an icon. Because she'd have, she'd have beaten everybody. All these people that were younger than her. you know, Who at this point were even not a million miles away from being young enough to be her daughter. And she'd beaten them all while pregnant. And so, at this point, really, once she had the baby, is that she had a choice. She could have sat there and retired, said, look, I've done it. Everything that you could possibly do, you know, in terms of tennis, I've won all the majors, I've been dominant, I am an inner circle Hall of Fame. I have an argument to be the greatest tennis player of all time, not just for women, but of tennis as a whole. And she would have then been a legend. She would have been a legend had she taken several months off and just said, look, I'm going to look after the baby, I'm going to be a mum. And then I will come back if and when I feel like it. That would have made her a legend. And she would have been a legend had she said, look, I'm going to just compete. A bit like, you know, Venus, you know, because of the, some of the illnesses that, you know, mean that she's unlikely to ever be, you know, fully dominant again. And But she decided in her 30s, I'm just going to play because I love the game. If I do well, get to finals or win something, happy days. But if I'm just getting into the quarterfinals, I'm just happy to be here for the love of the game. Serena would have been a legend. Once you take on that icon, the res- almost the responsibility, it was, I'm going to come back and nothing's going to have changed. I'm going to make the next Australian Open, even if it means that I'm coming back to top-level tennis months after I've given birth. It, it's almost that bit in the... Sort of, it always reminds me of that bit in Shawshank Redemption where the, the prison and governor says nothing changes. The idea that she was just going to come back and immediately carry on winning. She was going to break the record of Margaret Court for the you know, most you know, Grand Slam titles for female tennis player. I mean, the key point is nobody considers Margaret Court as a better tennis player than Serena Williams. Margaret Court, the majority of her majors were, was in Australia at a time when lots of... You know, in this, 60s and 50s, 60s and 70s, when lots of the best players didn't bother to go to the Australian Open because of the distances, 
flights, costs, and all the rest of it. So she was playing in a diminished field. Yes, she was still a great player. She still won the other majors. But, you know, the bread and butter that made up her legend status was playing in a weakened field in a home tournament in Australia. And the problem is her pregnancy had been difficult. She'd nearly died of blood clots afterwards. She'd had months of bed rest. So she missed the original comeback date, which was the Australian Open. And she'd said, look, I'm going to go play in the French Open a few few months later. But this is where it... This is where the first inklings of just how much this narrative, the narrative of being an icon and having to maintain that, became started to become an issue. So she wore this black cat suit. Uh, technically speaking, it was against the dress code. Now, and it's well known that the French Open it is fussy about these sort of things. You know, you can make jokes about you know French and fashion all you want, but. The thing is, is that there are a million different ways, there are so many different ways she could have gone about it. She could have worn, you know, she could have worn this catsuit, but at the same time, worn it, you know, a, a skirt. Now, it's not my person, I'm not in any way, shape or form interested in policing what, you know, female tennis players wear. I'm not interested in policing what the men wear. Simply, the rules are the rules, and... In a way, what it was is it was almost a sense, a tacit acceptance that she wasn't going to win the tournament, but she was going to win the headlines. So, in other words, she was saying, "Look, I've just, I've nearly died. I've had this kid, and I'm now going to be the sort of concept of the supermom." And it plays well to the columnist. It's an easy five hundred words because effectively the French was the sort of tournament organizers looked fusty in the sense they were saying, "Look, you can't wear this." And she was saying, well, no, I need this to stop, you know, preventing blood clots, preventing problems and joke. But the point is, is that should you be playing a tennis tournament if you require sort of wearing that for medical reasons? If your health is in that kind of danger, should you really be playing tennis? And the point is, is that the cat suit was dropped by the time she played Wimbledon. And so the thing is, is that with that, we all remember where we were when we saw the pictures of the catsuit and the fact that it was, you know, it was black and it was sort of resemblant of the uh, sort of Black Panther movie that had just been out. Do you actually remember or know who won that tournament? Because, you know, Serena was knocked out within the first week. I don't remember who won that tournament. All we really remember is that she had this catsuit, that there was this, you know, it was huge news. And I think the problem with this sort of the concept of the supermom and how it's sort of the way how the media has created it, it the thing is, is that it made her appear in some way, shape, or form condescending. She was like, oh, "I'm doing this for mothers everywhere." It's in the sense that it's condescending. The point is that Serena Williams had the money and the power to do whatever she wanted. She never had to pick up another racket in her life. You know, she had the money, she... And the thing is, is that if she decides to go to work, she has the money to pay for the nannies to travel first class. It's a decision that most women don't have that power, you know, when they become mum. Some have to go back to work, because they just don't have a choice. There isn't the, the coin to make that decision. You know, to take that... You know, to, for them to make their own decision on what they want to do. You know, she is not representative 
of the average woman. She is a world-class, brilliant athlete and incredibly wealthy. You know, clearly, you know, nearly in the 1% as opposed to the rest of us in the 99%. And again, it's not, I'm not here, this is not to criticise Serena Williams in any way, shape or form. I think it is an incredible achievement to win, you know, the Australian Open while pregnant. And the fact that she didn't realise she was as far along. I think she thought she was something like a month, maybe five weeks, and that she was actually closer to two months once she'd done the proper pregnancy test after having one. The point is, is that it's easy to say it's heroic now that she won and that she you know, had the baby and it was everything was fine and healthy. The point is, would you be able to watch... If someone if someone sat there and said, look, this is the Australian Open and it's in incredibly hot weather. So many times in at you know Melbourne you've had problems where you know heat stroke, you've had where they've had to close the you know the roof, they had to suspend play because it's dangerous to health. In a way that you know Roland Garros and Wimbledon don't have usually have those levels of problems in terms of the weather, the extreme weather. Could you sit there and enjoy watching Serena Williams batter whoever it was during that two-week run if you knew she was pregnant? If she knew that, you know, if she slipped over or if there was heat stroke? I don't think you would have enjoyed it. I don't think I could have sat there and watched it without feeling absolutely you know, nerve-wracking. Just hoping, you know, not hoping that she wins or loses, just hoping that she's all right. And the thing is, is that, you know, with any kind of, any kind of discussion of you know athletes and their children it's complicated you know some kids will be like oh, i'm i'm absolutely you know it's amazing that my mom did that some would be like well actually really did you have to you know win the australian open was it that important that actually you weren't willing to take you know to stop playing long enough you know to have a kid Again, it, it's it's subjective. You know, different people will have different opinions, and I don't think it's a right or wrong. In the end, she won the tournament. She was given the medical sign off to do so. And this is, I, 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 I hope, and this, sincerely, I hope that she beats Margaret Court's record because I think that's important, just on the simple prep basis that I think Mar, you know, Margaret Court isn't the greatest tennis female tennis player of all time. I think. You know, her recent behaviour has been bigoted in the extreme. And I think Serena Williams, you know, would be so much better as the greatest player of all time. I don't... It's detail, really. But the point is, is that there's this sense now that if you, if you imagine once Serena Williams' career ends, that if she never wins another major, it will simply be before Olympia, after Olympia. And, and as a result, you're basically almost in a way, this kid's going to be the, the kid that prevented... You know, Serena Williams from you know, becoming the record holder. And I don't think that's necessarily a fair thing to dump on a kid. And then you're going to have the issues of really the Amazon documentary where you know it sort of really showed that the struggles. And during this period of time, I think every decision was in some ways a conscious decision of to maintain iconhood. Needing to constantly have... The next thing had to be huge. So in other words, the, there was a tournament she played. It was a build-up tournament to one of the majors. She was playing Johanna Conza, who, you know, British tennis player, you know, who'd reached as high as four in the world. Good, very good player. 
and she got absolutely annihilated. I think it was uh, 6-1-6-1 of that nature. It was a historic defeat for her. And what happened was is that it turned out a few moments before the game went ahead, the match went ahead, she'd found out that the her sister's murderer was about to be released from prison. Now, I think most people wouldn't be, would just pull out. Okay, at the time, people would be disappointed in the crowd. You might even hear a few boos. But eventually, in a, within you know an hour or two, because of the way how you know, Twitter and social media works, it will be f- clear to find out what had happened and that obviously she wasn't in the place to play tennis. No one would blame her at all. Nobody. But the thing is, she goes out there and plays this game anyway, gets easily beaten, and in the end, it was almost as if it was you're playing into the narrative. Even when she loses, it was the narrative was dominant. It was because she'd had this horrible, shocking news. And in some ways, and I don't think people really quite picked up on it at the time, was that actually, in some ways, the focus was actually on, I need the match practice. Even though I'm in no fit state, I'm almost certainly not going to beat her at all. I actually still need to get on that court and play those two sets because it's good practice, even if I get battered. I mean, that's a kind of focus that I don't think even the average tennis player, even the average professional tennis player, let alone the average person in the street, would have that level of, I suppose, desire. In a sense, it wasn't she wasn't going to win that tournament, but she needed that match practice because she needed to win. So it was either Wimbledon, because that's her favourite major, or it was winning at the US Open, which is her home major. So that she, you know, so it would be the perfect moment. That it would be magical. Ah, the first I've won since I've become a mother, that I'm doing this for mothers everywhere. And really that leads to this the Naomi Osaka incident, where she has an absolute breakdown on court. You know, screaming at the umpire. I think one of the saddest things about it was is that there was a TV interview shortly after she'd won. I think it might have been on um, US television, sort of daytime TV. And the first six questions she was asked, Naomi Osaka having been, you know, she's a hugely important, you know, upcoming star in you know, the tennis world. But the first six questions after she'd won the US Open were all about Serena. The thing is, is that she'd been, you know, penalised for... She'd been penalised by the umpire for you know, receiving coaching from her coach up in the stands, which is allowed in most tennis tournaments, but not in the majors. And even the coaches have come out and after the game admitted, yeah, I was trying to coach her. But at this point, she refused to even admit she was wrong in that regard, that her behaviour was wrong. It was the umpire that was, you know, screwing her, that it was, you know... And I understand. I mean... <sighs> In the sense that, like, if you, the thing is, is that I'm making an argument, and I, I don't personally think that she deserves any criticism. I think, broadly speaking, she is a fantastic role model, and the iconhood and the tyranny of narrative can be dangerous. I don't think it's healthy for anyone to have that level of pressure on them. And that, that would screw anyone's thought processes up. When every single bit of your life is dissected. It's, it's not healthy, necessarily. I mean, 
the whole point is you compare and contrast a tiger. The whole point is, is that tiger, for an extended period of time, you know, five, six, seven, ten years, was able to be the world's best golfer and had the family that looked great on the 18th of Augusta when he was winning the Masters. And at the same time, he had detached himself and he could just go to Las Vegas, go wherever, and have industrial amounts of, you know, extramarital sex, gambling, late nights. So, yeah, you could say in a sympathetic reading. So, in other words, Serena Williams has done none of that. Anywhere near. She has been, you know, an exceptional ambassador for tennis. She's not perfect. No one is. But even a sympathetic reading time, would she say, oh, well, it's the pressure of Ike and her, you know, having a childhood where, you know, I mean, at one point, that's one of the interesting things about the Williams and Earl Woods, how they brought up their kids, is that basically both of them would be playing tennis and golf with crowds of locals shouting abuse at them. In other words, their parents were like, we know at some point you're going to get abuse, so we're going to toughen you up now. In other words, you're going to be used to, if someone ever shouts that out during the middle of a tournament, you will not break concentration. You will carry on. And you think, well, that's probably not in any, you know, contemporary guidebook to how to raise a, a child. It's probably not healthy. In the end, yes, you might create the world's greatest tennis player, the world's greatest golfer. They might end up with issues. And I think it's interesting that if you compare Iconhood between Tiger and Serena, is that Serena's Iconhood was more exacting. In other words, she was racially abused at Indian Wells, and her and her sister refused to play that, you know, kind of big tournament, probably in the top ten for the largest kind of tennis tournaments on the WTA. And they did it 10 years until effectively Indian Wells had to put their hands up and apologise. It should have taken 10 years, but they eventually ended up making their point. And it's a fantastic stand. And yes, tennis needed you know, Serena Williams and Venus, and to a lesser extent, they needed Richard Williams as characters and to really push the sport on in the modern 21st century world. But they were less receptive. Golf needed Tiger Woods. And golf were very happy to have him. And I don't think his iconhood was anywhere near as exacting. Yes, okay, after the scandal, but even then, by the time he'd won a few years, he was still popular, still made a you know, crap load of money. By the time he wins the Masters, effectively all is forgiven. Even though for years he was distant to other players, wasn't the best interviewer. And it's only really now that you've had this, you know, huge scandal that he started to, to become a real person you know he started to you know you realize that that beneath tiger was actually an ordinary person who was flawed just like you know you or me and that he became more human to people and i think that's why you know people love tiger but they loved him because he was a winner whereby his last masters victory people loved him because he was a flawed human being who just happened to be exceptional at golf. So in other words, you know, when golf wanted some sort of dog whistle racism, lots of people would focus on sort of VJ Sting's cheating. Oh yeah, he cheated at that tournament years and years ago. And that would be an out. So in other words, I don't imagine Tiger Woods got a shoot. I don't ever recall Tiger Woods having racism really directed at him in a way that Indian Wells not, you know, effectively working as a tournament for 10 years without Serena. I don't think there was a 
comparable situation in golf. I'm sure he's had abuse, but it wasn't institutional in that nature. Golf needed Tiger Woods so much. And I think one of the sort of interesting stories with Serena in during this sort of time period where the the need to be an icon was pretty much at its peak was the, the rankings issue because she'd taken time off you know, to have this child. You know, she wanted, you know, it became an issue really, well, do you get parked? So in other words, you just go right to the bottom and then have to work your way up. And the thing is, is that it, it, it became a major issue. She, the thing is, for a while, it felt as if Serena Williams was the first per, first major female tennis player to have a baby while on tour. And and that everything was very new and that this was kind of a major thing when really actually you'd had a you know Kim Clijsters that had had children and then come back and won majors but it just didn't feel as big or as important as when Serena did so there was the issue of the rankings and whether and eventually you know they changed the rules and it was one of those things is that it hadn't been an issue to her until it affected her and it wasn't as if she got a consensus of the best players it was well, I think this is unfair. And it was really a way that she was showing her dominance of the tour. That, you know, effectively, the right thing happened. In other words, they came up with a plan so that now you can, you know, go off, have a child, return to the tour, and not be right at the bottom. But the thing is, is that it... The thing is, is that Serena Williams does not stand for all female tennis players. Some people will like, actually... You know, and they, they had a couple of interviews with some of the lower level pros and like, well, actually, we think it is, you know, if you choose to leave the tour, if you want to come down and you know you're at the bottom and work your way up, that's fine by us. It's a competition. It's it's a decision that you make personally. Again, I there's there's no perfect solution. I think that's the easiest way of, of going about it. And in the end, they've come up with a system that I think, broadly speaking, works. That, that means that you don't go right to the bottom and you're able to you know maintain you know it's not so difficult that you're not feeling penalized and again going back to woods tiger woods never had this problem in other words he could have as many children as he wanted it wasn't ever going to impact his domination of golf in that regards during his peak so in the end really to conclude this podcast Iconhood is going to be so difficult for the modern player because it's so much in your brand and it's something that you have to control or it's controlled by your sponsors, it's controlled by your management and it's never going to be as simple as it was for the first generation. So your Arnold Palmer's, your Jack Nicholas, even to an extent your OJ's. You know, the only pe- the, the only icons that had had issues really was, you know, Muhammad Ali with Vietnam. And in the end, it just led to an even bigger triumph, which made him even more iconic when he came back from having been unfairly stripped of the, the heavyweight title to then come back and win after, you know, four years of not being able to compete. And hopefully, and I want to end this on a, on a positive note eventually after the 
you know, sort of nightmare of the US Open final. Because I can understand. Yeah, I think Serena was massively in the wrong during that final. And I think it was interesting that most tennis correspondents said, you know what, she was wrong. In the end, you, you know, the judge had done the right thing and was going to be unfairly pilloried by the rest of the world who just wanted Serena to win more than anything else because that would, you know, produce a wonderful narrative. It would be wrap everything up in a nice, neat little bow. And yet the columnists, the people who aren't major sports fans, were broadly supportive because they were trying to make a wider point. And the thing is, yes, you know, we live in a in a society that is still, to my mind, fundamentally sexist. It's you know, even if you have all of the legislation in place, you have hiring practices, you have, you know, basically systemic years where, you know, women have been effectively second-class citizens. And there isn't an easy way to solve that. There isn't a way that we can, you know... It's going to take years and it's going to be battles to get to a society where, you know, whether you're born a man or born a woman isn't going to be a fundamental precursor as to the life that you're going to lead. And I think, in the end, Serena realises this. In the end, she needed, you know, she said that she needed counselling afterwards. And I think, in the end, it, I think there was a realisation that, and it was understandable, I think, that when you go through becoming a mother for the first time, and you do it in the public eye, and I think she did. She wanted to be to be a role model. She wanted to be an icon. She always she already is. But I think the problem is is that when you start thinking as if you're an icon, it becomes a prison. You know, it's an impossible burden. It's a pressure. Everybody else, even legends, can just go out there and play. Win, lose doesn't really matter but when you're an icon losing matters you know it doesn't matter whether you've got 20 grand slams if you don't win after you've had a kid that will then be on your tombstone that will be the the wikipedia part oh and then she never won another major and i think in the end although she had taken on that burden willingly and you know i i think drank in all of the you know outside you know, all the columnists all the people that had happy to jump on the bandwagon because it was an easy 500 words to talk about Serena as a mum to try and make a wider point about because actually there was you know, limited amounts of you know female sports stars who'd had kids you know it's not an everyday occurrence in other words with Jacinda Hearn the prime minister of New Zealand having a kid and being a leader that hadn't happened at this point is that I think the columnists were right to use Serena as an example, but but that just to me shows you that it, you can't have a situation where Serena Williams becomes emblematic of motherhood everywhere. You know, she's just one person, and I feel she's done more than enough in her career, more than enough positives, more than enough boundary breaking, barrier breaking, you know, shattering of glass ceilings. To know that you know she single handedly cannot you know, defeat sexism, she cannot defeat racism, she can only do as much as one tennis player can do in a world of six, seven billion people. 
And I think since that US Open final, she, from what I've read and what I've seen, I think she's more content, more relaxed in that, and just, I think, more enjoying just being Serena Williams, a great tennis player. I think she still wants to win those majors, but I don't think it's going to be as quite a bigger an issue as when it first, when she first came back to the tour, when it seemed that, you know, when it seemed that losing those finals at Wimbledon and at Flushing Meadows was just an absolutely crushing defeat. That it was, you know, the absolute lowest of the lows. When really, actually, what she was doing was incredible. Having nearly died, having to, you know, have you know, months of just bed rest, having a kid, and all of, and at the age for a professional athlete to then come back and within such a short period of time got to finals. That was an incredible achievement. Regardless of whether she wins and loses, she will always be an icon. But we need to remember that these are just people. And that and the iconography in so many ways for sports stars, especially individual sports stars, really needs is something that needs to be used very carefully. It needs to be something that is used once your career's ended. Rather than this constant need to, you know, label people during their careers as the graces of all time, you know, icons, legends, you know, because as we've seen, it can be so damaging. You know, these are just individual people, gifted and wonderful as they are, putting that burden on them is impossible and unfair. Thank you for listening.